This is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. Welcome to a, a very special episode of the Human Things Podcast. This is episode eight of season, season two, episode eight. All right. Hey, again, this is Jay Watts, and I have joined with a very special guest today on the podcast. It is uh, MJ Watts. She is a sophomore at Kennesaw State University, an early education major with a minor in ancient and modern classics, uh, or she's working on both of those things. She is an award-winning researcher in her first year at university. She is a formidable young woman, uh, and she is also my daughter, and she is here for a very special episode. I will tell you more about the task that she was given, uh, but before we do that, we're going to cover some of the just lead-in stuff that we like to do. Number one, as a guest, you are going to be confronted. I warned you about this just about two minutes ago. Two minutes ago, whichever camera's going on right now. Um, a three-song set. You have to pick a musician and the single best three-song set they can put together. So you got your best against anyone else's best. You got to tell me, you get one musician, you got to put together the best three-song set that they've got that you will put up against any other musical group, musician, artist, whatever. Go. I think right now I would go with Hozier as my artist and then okay. pick work song, um, would that I, and probably all things end. No, Hozier, but no take me to church in the three song set. That is bold. I felt weird about saying that. Oh, yeah, that. okay. All right. so then, I also, I do. You don't think, want to look sacrilegious. I think the, the three I picked are better. <laughs> okay. So. All right. I. I thought you would go Noah Khan. I, it was between I him and Noah, Noah Khan, yeah. but I don't know what three songs I would pick. Uh, Stick Season, <laughs> um, All My Love. I wouldn't pick All My Love. I don't. What think. would you pick? I would probably if I was doing Noah Khan. I would. I might not even do Stick Season. Wow. <laughs> I would do Orange Juice, for sure. Um, probably either Your Needs or My Needs. And then main or um, false confidence. But right. you haven't, have you listened to anything besides Stick, Stick Season? Stick Season? Yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> that, Noah Kahn, if you're not familiar with Noah Kahn as a listener, he is a musical artist uh, and he, he's from Vermont, right? Yeah. And uh, I think New England. Vermont, well. Stick season's about Vermont, right? He's living in Vermont when he writes a song. Well, no, but I mean the whole song. There's another song, song like, that I he's like, I mean, but I grew up in New England. Well, Vermont's so. in the New England area. Okay, okay. All right. so anyway, and um, I my my young my MJ got me hooked on him. So MJ transferred me over to Noah Khan this summer, and now I'm just a huge Noah Khan fan. Uh, would not neither one of those would be my three, and it wouldn't be Hall and Oates either. Although I've talked about them a lot. Show. So, no, okay, all right. So you're going Hosier, and you're going, what was your three songs again? Um, work song, Would That I, and All Things End. All right, you feel good about that? I think. I can't remember the name. He just dropped an album last week, and I can't remember the name of the song off there that I would probably replace All Things End with, but okay, All Things End is also a powerhouse. All right. so. Okay, so the other thing I want to discuss was um, we were just discussing, uh, discussing the things that I have been most wrong about in my life. And there's a lot. There's a huge list of things 
that I have been horribly wrong about. I one time did a series of Facebook posts about him. Uh, you know, on a sports front, I really genuinely thought Ryan Leaf was going to be a better pro quarterback than Peyton Manning. That is horrifying. I mean, the worst call ever in the history of sports, and I was in on it. For whatever reason, I was all, it might just be my contrarian nature, too. Yeah. I might have just not liked the idea that everybody was all in on Peyton Manning, and I thought I was going to be clever by saying, I'm going Ryan Leaf. But I, I, and I learned nothing from that, by the way. I'm still mm. capable of terrible takes. The other one was, and this started early for us, because as a homeschooler, the homeschool community, the place where we met, one day we got disrupted. We couldn't park where we normally park. They told us there was going to be people in a part of the church we were meeting where we, so we couldn't be in there. And so what we found out was they said they're filming a new series, and it's a sequel to The Karate Kid, and they've got everybody back. And they're so they're filming it to the the... We had all of the techies and the prep, all the office, and they were filming across the street from us. And I remember telling somebody that day, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. It's been so long. They can't possibly think that anybody wants to watch The Karate Kid again. And, um, not, I mean, I, I, when by the time Cobra Kai came out, I thought it was one of the greatest shows. I love it. I love Cobra Kai. I think it's a, I think it's a great show. I love the fact that it's told from Johnny's point of view because I was always one of those people that I loved Daniel LaRusso in the early show, but the further we, the further along the shit the movies went, the more I found him a little grating and started to look back on how Johnny was treated in the first movie and kind of not quite as passionately as Barney and How I Met Your Mother, but I did get to that place where it was, it was you know, Johnny is the karate kid. Jo- Johnny was treated unfairly. Right. Johnny was treated way. And so when the first episode starts with Johnny relating his thing. So you said from that, what was your question? Who do you think the greatest karate kid villain is? The greatest karate kid villain. And that's tough. Right. Because Silver's ridiculous. I mean, he's he is so over the top stupid as a villain. In, in the context of this cute little movie that first came, when The Karate Kid first came out, it was this lovely little story about this kid that moved to this new neighborhood. He's trying to fit in, and Karate helps him to establish himself and to become more confident in who he was. But, and then you get to Karate Kid 2, we're in Okinawa, and it's getting weird, and, and, and things have changed. And like every sequel, oh my gosh, every sequel has to start off with Everything we were building in the, the last movie, it's gone. Just immediately. So Allie, who was the love of his life, dumped him at prom, right? Yeah. What is up with that? She's supposed to be this great catch, and she's that's just that's that's ruthless. That's not just it didn't work out. That's Allie pretended she liked me and then trashed me on the most important night. I mean that that kind of retroactively ruins Allie. Because she fell in love with a UCLA football player. like Which I get. I mean, if you had a yeah, but UCLA why wait till prom to tell yeah. I mean, if you had a UCL, <laughs> UCLA football player and Daniel LaRusso, I get it, right? Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, that seems that seems harsh. I didn't like Allie in the first movie. You didn't like Allie in the first no. movie? Okay, I don't know. I was probably blinded by being a hormonal teenager when it first came out. <laughs> every, every guy I knew was in love with her and was, was in love with Elizabeth Shue back then. Of course, you know, my circle of friends was other hormonal kids. Yeah. So we were all, but, but Elizabeth Shue was, 
something special. Yeah, see, I'm getting the thumbs up from JD as well, right? So, so you might have had some sense that there was something wrong there. What is it you didn't like about her? I didn't like how she, I, I felt like the way she treated Johnny was so unwarranted. Like Daniel, so Daniel attacks Johnny at the Halloween dance, right? Which again, it's been months since Johnny and Daniel have had any interaction at this point, And Daniel just decides he's going to attack Johnny. And then when Johnny and his friends are running out because Daniel made the first move, Ali just trips them all with like that giant stick. Yeah, she's got to give him a head start, man. He already has a head start. Yeah, like, like a, wasn't it a five on one at that point? Okay, yeah, there's there's a lot of blame to go around there. I do get Johnny's point, but it wasn't like Johnny's something innocent. I mean, he was getting stoned in the stall there. Uh, I'm torn. Yeah. I'm torn here, but I get it. All right, all right. So, but she's not, I don't think Allie's the worst. Maybe she is. Maybe Allie's the worst <laughs> villain in that show because she trashes Dan. But then he goes on to Okinawa when he meets someone else, falls in love with them. And then of and course I like that her. Does. She's really sweet. Yeah, she was. And then then she's gone. And we've got somebody but new. She's at least gone because she gets a chance to be a dance teacher in Tokyo. Yeah. Like that's like a valid excuse to not fly to America, in my yeah. opinion. But there's a lot of valid excuses yeah. not to uproot your life to go chase the high school guy you just met yeah. over the summer <laughs> across the globe. But so yes. And it's by the time you get to silver it's this rich guy who shows up and helps take out revenge on this high school guy <laughs> because he's mad that he hurt Crease, right? Um, yeah, now we're getting weird, right? The whole way he sets him up, manipulates them, and then brings in Karate's bad boy. Mike Barnes is awesome. <laughs> so Mike, Mike Barnes would be your... Okay, who are you? Okay, where are you going? Okay, here's my thing. The fights in two and three, Daniel would have lost if it wasn't for, in the second one, the girl interfering. Like, Chosen's about to stomp him off a rock, and he's going to die. And then the girl comes up and grabs. So he wouldn't have won that fight on his own. And then in three, Mike Barnes gets in six hits. And the only reason he doesn't win is because Silver is telling him to lose the point. Lose the point. And the only point that Daniel scores is because he starts doing his kata. And Mike Barnes is so confused that he just kind of looks at him. And so Mike Barnes is clearly the superior fighter, and I think Chosen is too. Um, and, like, I wonder, like, would Johnny have won if he hadn't done the, the illegal move before? So, so basically your point is you think Daniel LaRusso is the worst fighter in the series. I think he's the most entitled fighter in okay. this series. I think he would have lost in the semifinals had Crease uh, not told, what's his name, to sweep the leg? I think Tommy. Tom, yeah, yeah. I thought Tommy. I liked Tommy, man. He was flying around. He looked good. Yeah. I thought Tommy had a chance against Johnny. That that's how <laughs> that's how warped I am when I'm watching Karate Kid. I'm like that poor Tommy kid, man. He had a chance to win, and then he got beat by a, he got taken out by a bad teacher. Um, so I don't know. For me, I guess the I think Crease is the greatest of the villains yeah. because not just just because I think he represents something a little bit more real than everything else in it. Yeah. And that for me, I mean, he's. And villains either go, for me, go one way or another. When you're talking about great villains, they're either people that know everything. And when you're talking about, like, Moriarty, uh, Sauron, who's tracking everybody in Lord of the Rings. Um, what was his name on The Mentalist? I love that one. For oh, Red, Red John. Red John. Red John for the first few seasons, the, the run of The Mentalist. I mean, you have, you have these great villains of great stories, and they seem to know everything. They're one step ahead of everybody. And then you've got villains like Kreese, who is just a broken human being, but is, is genuinely 
I mean, what he's doing there is genuinely evil, right? And and he is just, I think, one iteration past a lot of coaches you see if you if you go in youth sports, right? I mean, it's not Kreese is 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 just a slight exaggeration of coaches that you'll meet. As as horrifying as that is, if you're involved in youth sports, you're meeting people kind of like Kreese. Maybe not quite as bad. I don't, I don't know, not as bad. Yeah. Refing, like, I remember this one girl came in and trucked the other team's best player, like, knocked her out. She had to be out for the rest of the game. And when she was coming off the field with her red card, the coach high-fived her, and I was like... Oh, my gosh. So, yes, that's why I say crease, because crease represents something real in our world that you better be mindful of. Yeah. And, and, and the allure of it. I mean, I think that's the fascinating thing about watching... We're watching, she has me watching the, the show with her, Cobra Kai. And as Daniel's, you know, struggling to get people interested in Miyagi-Do, part of it is because Cobra Kai does look cooler, right? I mean, there is an allure to winning. And um, you see it in every sport, win at all costs. Uh, that, that means, and, and, and the sad thing is, obviously in youth sports, you see kids being burnt out by these coaches who are more interested in their records. than us. So that's why I think I like uh, silver as far as the most over the top insane villain in the, in the karate kid universe. But crease to me is the, the ultimate villain because he just doesn't care about Danny at all. Right. He cares about his students being able to show that they're the best. And I, I found him, I guess I don't know, more believable. I don't know. That's it. All right. So anything else? I, I just think this interest this conversation's interesting to have when you haven't finished Cobra Kai yet. Oh, okay. All right. So I'll have to finish Cobra Kai. And so then I can we'll have come an, back to an, it. Okay, we'll we'll revisit. <laughs> we'll have you come back on the show okay. entirely to revisit better. my new video of, of whether or not Cobra Kai's villain greatest villain is Crease. Okay. So moving on, let's talk about why you're actually here. So for the entire time we've been doing this show, I have been trying to get pro choice people to send me their objections to the pro-life view. Um, it's not a great time for doing that, by the way, because pro-choice people are angry right now because of what happened with Roe. There was a time when they were more willing to engage because they just had such confidence that the pro-life view seemed like a fringe view held by weird people. And even then, they could, people could be hateful. I mean, I get things, I think I've mentioned before, I've been called the Christian Taliban, and there's been other things said about me or to me. Uh, but... Now it's difficult to get most people who identify themselves as pro-choice to engage, particularly younger people, because they're angry. And, and their anger makes, it, makes them not want to, to engage. They want to pretend you're not here and you're not worth engaging. As if they say, I'm not even wor- you're not even worth talking to, they'll somehow get it back to the situation where Roe v. Wade. By the way, it's not coming back. There's nothing you're going to be able to do to get it back, I mean, in the sense of the way it was before. So you might as well engage because the 50-state battle is what's going on right now. Uh, so, and, and you're not going to get a national law. It's just not going to You don't have the vote. I mean, going like Hamilton, right? You don't have the votes. There's a whole song about it in Hamilton. You know, or not a whole song, just a little bit ditty. Okay, so anyway, so QN, uh, my question. Last week I realized that my daughter had a gap between classes on the day that we were filming. Uh, and so I asked her, I can't get pro-choice people to talk to me, but you seem to have a lot of friends that are pro-choice. So would you, do you think you could get them to tell you objections and then you come on the show and you tell me those objections? So she said she could, and then she did. And she called me and asked me, do you want me to give them to you beforehand or you want me to just 
wait until the day we're recording. And I thought, that sounds even more interesting because that makes it more like a Q&A. And I like Q&A. There's something, like, I always tell people, when you're, when you're giving a platform presentation, a talk, um, when you get to Q&A and the audience gets a chance to ask you questions, that's when your view becomes more real to them. They don't trust the performance. They just don't because anybody can do it. You can memorize a performance, you can give it, and they don't trust it. The audience, they may like it, they may think you're good, but if they don't agree with you, if they agree with you, they love it. It's like a show. Uh, they love everything you're saying. But if they don't agree with you, they don't trust it because they think anybody can memorize these talking points. So they want to be able to push back. And once they can push back, then the idea that there's a competing world of views on this becomes more real to them. Even if they don't agree with you, they start to see that things are not as simple as they may have thought it was when they dismissed the pro-life position as either religious or as fringe or irrational or anything like that. They see it's not necessarily religious. It's not necessarily a fringe view. It's held by a lot of people, and it's, it's a rational position to hold. And that's where you start to make headway with an audience. So that is what MJ is here to do today. She is here to present some of the objections that she heard. I don't have any idea what she's about to say, and we're going to talk to them. Hopefully, I won't get in too much trouble yeah. here. Uh, without any chance to prepare. So that means uh, we are just going to talk, and you're going to tell me what people... No names, obviously. Yeah. No names. I don't even know. How I did it is I set up a um, Google forum where they could put it in. I don't even know which of my friends said what. Okay, that's great. So com right. completely anonymous, which made a lot of them more comfortable, too. Absolutely. That's cool. So we could maybe do this again. Yes. Okay, great. Yeah. All right. Oh, and, and in addition to all of that, as we start off, there is a new Students for Life of America... KSU group starting right now. Um, her brother Peyton is the president. You're involved with it. A group of y'all's friends are working together to get it going. So, and also this is part of getting ready for you guys to outreach and laying some groundwork for outreach to the, the KSU community. So here we go. Let's do it. Is this question one time? Yeah. Question one. Question one. I don't know if there's much, like, questions, more their opinions. Okay, let me hear their opinions. Then. So the first one is uh, more pro-life leaning. He said, they said, I think ideally it should be banned, excluding rape and incest, for a number of reasons. It's only rational that its legality leads people who aren't prepared for children to have more unprotected sex without fear of consequences, which surely cascades into greater problems as time goes on. However, I don't think it's realistic that it can be banned outright. So in terms of policies surrounding it, I'd be pretty happy if they only allowed pre-heartbeat procedures. Okay. Let's sort through that. So there's two things in there, actually, I think that are interesting. I don't know if rape and incest are coming up again. I assume they usually are. Yeah, they I mean, will. Okay. All right. So let's let's take the, the, the heartbeat issue. So, he, so this person, he... Which we already said. We're not gonna. I'm not gonna act like I didn't hear that. So, so, so he <laughs> well, says, I had multiple men. So right, that, okay. that doesn't that doesn't help, right? So yeah. he says that he thinks that it is obvious that having abortion legal encourages people to make decisions that lead to abortion. Correct. Yeah. All right. So that's part one, but he doesn't believe it's practical to have an outright ban on abortion. So does that mean he doesn't advocate for an outright ban, or does that mean he just doesn't think he'll ever get an outright ban? He has the rape and incest, but we're going to yeah. say he, so obviously he wants an exception. He appear he seems to want an exception for rape and incest. We're going to table that since it may since it's going to come up again later. Uh, 
I, I'm not clear on that. So, so let's take, take that first, right? Um, because this is actually a fight within, or an argument. I think some levels it's a fight, some people it's a lovely argument. I have met people on the side who would who believe themselves to be uncompromised this issue. Recently, Scott Klusendorf called me and asked me to come to a meeting about this. And in this meeting, we met with people who are what they believe principled, more principled in their position than people like me. I'm considered an incrementalist. I think that you have to take what you can get as you can get it, but but always towards a goal. And so here is the problem. If, if we're thinking in terms of, as an incrementalist, I accept the idea that if we are capable of saving lives by passing a certain level of legislation, that we should do that. We should save whatever lives that we can save. But I'm not comfortable with the idea of saying, but we'll never be able to fully restrict abortion. And here's why. My objection to abortion is that it is the unjust destruction of an innocent human life. And so it's not possible for me to be pragmatic ultimately, even if it's necessary for me to take less than I want right now because it saves lives, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not possible for me to not have in the end a hope that we live in a society without abortion. I have to hope for that, right? Um, and so that deep hope for a society without abortion, because I believe it's the unjust destruction of an innocent human life, can't be compromised because I realize it's going to be a difficult get. It may be impossible, by the way. I agree with it. It's possible that it's not possible just because of the nature of people. And certainly there's always going to, in, in, Joseph, in, book, in, in Joseph Delapina's book, Dispelling the Myths of Abortion History, he begins by saying we can accept that it's axiomatic, that as long as people have been getting pregnant who do not want to get pregnant, they have sought to end that pregnancy. So if we all accept that, then there is a level to which we have to, on some level, accept that there probably is not a world without abortion. But is there a world without legal abortion? Mm -hmm. That's a different question. Is it possible to build societies that don't celebrate it as a good? That would be nice. Is it possible to get a general consensus among the moral population of the world that this is not the way we deal with generational issue, I don't want the next generation here yet, then, then make other decisions, but we can't kill them once they're here, right? So if the idea, that's a, a, a point of clarification we have to get. Do you think, does this, object, does this person sharing their ideas think that in saying, I don't think it is possible to get there, that we shouldn't pursue it? Because I reject that. But I have to pursue it. And there's a great book, um, by Marianne Glendon from Harvard University called The Forum in the Tower. And The Forum in the Tower, I think, did you read it? I know Peyton had to read it. Yeah. Okay, so in The Forum in the Tower, the whole point of discussion is that you have the academic, the philosopher, the idea person, the activist, whatever you want to call them, and then you have the politician. And these two people serve different roles in the world. And the politician's role by nature is going to be one of compromise they're going to be compromising by the nature of what they do. And the philosopher is going to have to be uncompromised in their views because they're pushing for an idea in its purest form. And, and Marion Glendon's point throughout the book is that for the most part, philosophers make terrible politicians and politicians make terrible philosophers. I think she makes two exceptions. I believe it's Cicero and Edmund Burke are the only two exceptions that she makes. 
who, who she thinks balances that. And she shares about how it is the nature of the philosopher and the, and the argument for their purest form of what they want to upset people. So not calling myself a philosopher in that sense, but because I advocate for a position that is grounded in a principle that I don't see myself as being able to negotiate out of, all human beings ought to be treated with dignity and respect from the moment they come into existence to the time that they die. And abortion is the unjust destruction of an innocent human life. And so I am not capable of saying that I think there's an acceptable level of abortion, even though as an incrementalist, I'm capable of saying, let's fight for what restrictions we can get. But we always have to have a principled goal because mm-hmm. without it, we're just going to get lost in political compromise and, the, and we're going to lose sight of what we're after all the way. A great example of this, and then we'll move on, of where I think we lose sight of why we're doing things to begin with is TSA, right? <laughs> I mean, I, if, there is a, if there is a more useless group of people in the airport right now than TSA agents when you go through security, I don't know who they are. And, and here's why. And I, and I don't mean, I'm not besmirching them, the people who work for TSA. They can be good people. They, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I don't know them. But when you take something away from me, because it might be an explosive which I've had happen. They're like, and, and, let, and they'll tell me, are you willing to wait until the bomb squad can come and verify that this is not an explosive? And I say, no, but I just don't want to throw it away. It seems stupid. Like, then we have to throw it away. And then they do this. They take this possible explosive and they turn around and throw it into a trash can filled with a presumably other possible explosives that they have seized from other people who would not wait for the bomb squad to show up. So if it were true, if anyone believed this ruse that they were worried about explosives, then they're just piling up a can of explosives in the most populated and unsecure place in the entire airport. I heard an Israeli security guy one time, he said that American security at airports acts like terrorists just hates airplanes. Like they don't understand that terrorists want to kill people, not airplanes. And so they've set up this whole system to protect airplanes but that is incredibly dangerous to people, right? It's insane how worthless TSA... We had a bad episode when you were younger. I don't. Do you remember at the Denver airport where TSA tried to take you away from me? Yeah. And I thought I was going to end up on the no-fly list because because she's a type 1 diabetic and she had her... You had your pump and other things with her. And so they said they were going to have to take... And she was much younger at the time. Like, we have to take her away from you to search her. And, and I stood between them, her and the TSA agents, and said, you're not touching my daughter right and you're certainly not taking her where i can't see you and it got it escalated very quickly so but in that sense if we accept the idea that the tsa agents are good people but the tsa agency has lost the idea of what they're supposed to do right and another example of this with tsa do you know why we all have to take our shoes off when we get on planes because one guy tried to make a shoe bomb and by the way he didn't get it he didn't actually, he, he, when he was trying to light it, it wouldn't light on the plane and he got tackled by other people on the plane and they grabbed hold of him and held him down. And then they, I believe they taped him in some fashion to the, to his seat for the, and this guy, so because one guy tried this and failed for the rest of eternity, we have to take our stupid shoes off and our belts, right? Like as if our and nobody's ever tried to blow up a plane with a belt as far as I know, but we all got to take them off. So they're, they're in a point is what I say. That's what happens when you lose the principle. Let's, I think that Israeli security person was right. When they evaluated American security and they said, 
You're trying to stop things that have already happened. You're not trying to stop terrorists because the terrorists don't have the same goals that you're trying to stop. You're trying to stop people from doing things that already happened, and you're not trying to stop terrorists. Where the Israeli security, they said, we start profiling you when you get out of your car and you're approaching the airport. We're already watching you. We've got dogs in the parking lot. We've got dogs where you come in. You're not getting near our airport if you look suspicious. And he said, but the, or some woman, she said, the American security is ridiculous. It's stupid. It's not security. It's security theater. It's meant to make you feel safer without actually doing anything. That's what happens when you lose the, the reason you do what you do. So if we accept we're never going to stop abortion, then we're going to be like TSA sooner or later in the pro-life movement. We're just going to make no sense. We're going to run around saying things because we've lost the whole point. We think it's the unjust destruction of innocent human life, so we have to fight it tooth and nail as best we can. Okay, and the last thing he said was heartbeat. So he said that he thinks, read that part to me again. So in terms of policy surrounding it, I'd be pretty happy if they only allowed pre-heartbeat procedures. Okay. Number one, I can tell you the biggest problem you're going to have right now is a definition problem of heartbeat. Yeah. No, because I mean, within the last few years, there's been a huge pushback from the pro-choice people on the idea that a heartbeat begins as early as 21 days. So that's not a heartbeat. That's just the spasming of cells, right? Because it's not a functional heart. Mm-hmm. It's not moving blood. It's just it's the precursor to a heart. We, at the pro-life side, that's been a big deal for years, right? The heartbeat begins at 20 days. So, number one, as anybody on the pro-choice side will tell you, if you take a, a standard definition of when the heartbeat, a detectable heartbeat is, it's almost too early for most people to get a legal abortion anyway. So, it, it sort of effectively becomes, or, or what it does is actually in, encourages chemical abortion, which is where we're going anyway. And so... People are going to be testing early and using chemical abortions to get it done. Or over fifty percent of abortions are done through abortion pills anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and here's the other problem with that. Let's say he said, "I'd be ha- first of all, I don't like that. I'd be happy with. It. I, I would not be happy with it because now now what we do is we put on the table. You get better at abortion. They get better at abortion, by the way. The other side gets better at abortion. I've written an article about this for Christian Research Journal. They get better at it." They get better at the practice of abortion. So if we if we lay that on the table and we say, we're happy with this, we're willing to stop here, what are they going to do? They're going to make it even more possible to have it. Yeah, they're going to get better at it. Now, okay, sure. Right now that may pose a problem, but we're going to get better at it. And then when they get better at it, you're like, whoa, 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 we didn't expect you to get better at it. So we need to move that, though. And their response can, and I think rightfully be, whoa, whoa, whoa. You said you would be happy with that. We gave you what you said you would be happy. You got what you said you'd be happy with, but let's go ahead and do it. So that's my problem with it right there, right? Mm-hmm. Is it still, I'm saying, I would be happy with you being able to destroy life at its very earliest stages. Why? Why would I be happier about that than you destroying it when it's older? I don't understand that argument at all. But even so, even if we could say it's so early that it's going to reduce the number of abortions down to something almost insignificant or small until they get better at abortion, and then it's just going to go back up, and now we're going to have to fight because we said we'd be happy about it. I don't know why we would ever been happy about any, Mark. So, so I think there is just somebody thinking politically rather than philosophically, right? They're thinking about what can I get done versus – and they're not the only ones. Um, I talked – to a philosopher, Richard Stith, and he and I had an interview. We lost the interview. 
uh, computer glitch. I lost the whole thing. But it was a great interview. So so depressing. It was a great interview. Not you. It wasn't us. It wasn't. They did not lose. And this iteration, this was the kind of thing that made it clear to me that I shouldn't be doing this alone. Because I had really a great interview with a great philosopher who I will probably never be able to get to, to talk to me again. And I lost it. It was two hours. And he was brilliant. But the last 20 minutes of it, was Stith sharing with me his views on law and abortion. And he is not an advocate, but he would fall more in line with this person you're talking about here. He does not think we would be able to ever get a ban on abortion. Uh, so what he would like is something like what happens in Germany, which is that the German country, according to him, acknowledges the wrong of abortion, allows it in a very restricted window, but even as allowing it says, we don't like it and we don't want you to do it. And you can only do it during this little restrictive window, but we, we know that we're gonna. We would rather it be safe. And, and so he—that was his position. And he said he felt like that was what I wanted to talk to him about. And said, "Well, I didn't even know you felt that way." So we had a long conversation about that. Very smart man. He's given us some great arguments on the pro-life side, and he holds a position similar to that. But for me, the problem with that position ultimately is it's a confusion between the politics and the principles. And if we become unprincipled in our defense of human life, then we become political animals that, and, and ultimately our aims are going to be corrupted. So I, I, I understand the, the, the difficulties on the political end, but for somebody who believes that abortion is the unjust destruction of innocent human life, I don't know how we have anything other than the highest hope that we can live in a society without it. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Great. That's question number one. Let's move to question number two. All right. All right. So. I'm feeling excited. Feeling good. This person said, I don't think abortion should be used as a form of birth control, but I feel like it should be available to certain people who are victims of rape and stuff like that. And I also feel like it's not available. It is going underground and going to become unsafe. Okay, so that's two. All right, is that the last time we're going to have rape or is oh, it no. coming up again? No, it, oh, no. It, <laughs> okay, so let's let's go to the second objection first. And we'll, we'll table rape again if it's coming up again. Okay. Okay, so I'm not afraid of the rape question, by the way. I'm not afraid of talking about it. But, but I can tell you one of the things that's interesting about this, if you... I've spent 10 years speaking in front of audiences and almost every audience I speak in front of, if the host will allow it, we do a Q&A. And I know what questions are coming. I mean, I, I knew what questions were coming before we... So there is that sense. And so the first question, if you don't cover it in the talk, is always going to be about rape, and it's going to come up anyway. So so I always... Okay, rape's coming up again, so we're going to just hold off on rape again. Um, so let's talk about the second part of that. We read that part. Let's focus on that. Uh, I also feel like if it's not available, it is going to go underground and become unsafe. If abortion is not available, it's going to go underground and become unsafe. So we have to keep abortion legal to keep it safe and controlled, correct? Mm -hmm. All right. By the way, you know you're allowed to offer... I, was say, I, I remember talking to you about this argument um, when I was writing my thesis paper okay. in high school. So... The problem is, number one, when we say we want safe abortion, the question is, first, safe for who, right? 
safe for whom? Who, who are we making this safe for? Because every single successful abortion destroys an innocent human life. It's not possible to make abortion safe. If it's a moral crime to destroy innocent human life, every successful abortion does exactly that. So the idea of safe abortion assumes that the unborn are not the same as you and I, or you and me, you and me, not the same as you and me. So it assumes that. It makes an assumption without demonstrating that through argument. Because we can look at other areas and say there is nowhere else you would allow another human being to destroy that many human lives to protect them from the consequences of their action. So it's not to say that the pro-life position is insensitive to what will happen to a woman if she decides to get an abortion and as a result of it dies. That's a tragedy. That's a terrible thing. So we're not sensitive to that idea. What we're saying is if let's say a million, somewhere in the neighborhood of a million, where it's, it's difficult for us to have numbers right now on how many abortions are happening annually. For about 10 years, it was 1.3 million. And then it dipped down supposedly under a million. But because so many abortions are being procured now through the abortion medical protocol, and so many people are getting those medicines from different places and not reporting them. So if you order them from Europe and get them sent to you because you're trying to bypass American laws or you just don't want people to know, you don't have to walk into a local clinic and admit what's going on or whatever your motivation would be, then we don't know. So let's just say a million as a number, a million human lives being destroyed in the United States every year through the practice of abortion. I suspect it's higher, but let's just say a million. So what you're asking me to do is in the recognition. And, and by the way, another thing that is not known widely is that by the time you get to 1973, when abortion is legalized, the number of people dying in the United States from illegal abortions was remarkably low. Like, hazard a guess. What do you think it is? Like in the 30s? No, yeah, it is. I'm like 37. I think I did the research. Yeah, you did a research paper on this, right? Yeah. And, by the way, when you legalized it, or made it, 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 when it, it did not go down remarkably, right? It did, that didn't solve that problem. That was about how many people are going to die of abortion in a year at that point in time. Given so, And, and you have, I think in 1967, the medical director of Planned Parenthood was Mary Calderon, and she was arguing uh, before Congress that abortion is incredibly safe, that the age of people dying of abortion was done, that the overwhelming number of medical abortions that were being performed illegally were being done by doctors and, and, a, and a safe medical procedure, that the most dangerous ones were the most desperate ones where people were doing things to themselves at home. By the way, they still do, and sometimes there's nothing you can do about people who are just emotionally unstable because of the events that are going on, and they choose to do terrible things. And so... Um, if we accept the CDC's data on that, and by the way, you can go to Planned Parenthood and pull this, and, and so it's not a secret, then what, we looking, what we're looking at is, and let's say that was way too conservative, so let's quadruple it, right? Let's get to 150, right, let's, let's say 1,000, let's go even crazy. Let's go to the numbers that they claimed, which was five to 10,000 women a year were dying of abortion. By the way, that's the disparity between what was claimed and the reality. 
Five to 10,000 women a year are dying of illegal abortion in the United States. 37. It's a massive disparity between those made up numbers that they can't possibly uh, justify and what was actually going on. But let's give them 10,000. 10,000. Let's say it's just that bad. 10,000 women every year are dying of unsafe abortion. So what we do in response and that logic is legalize it so that they have the right to kill a million human beings a year to protect 10,000 people from the consequences of their unjust decisions. That's not how we do law, right? We don't in anywhere else go out of our way to protect criminals who are doing things that are unjust because we're afraid that enforcing the law well, that's not true. I'm sorry. I'm absolutely wrong in saying that now, aren't I? Because we're, we're inundated all the time from California, right? Where they just allow people to steal. Isn't it up to $1,000 as long as you're stealing less than $1,000 that there will be no prosecution? So I am, I am absolutely wrong. And look how well that's working out. I mean, that's, that, that plan in action has been amazing, Right. As if nobody could see what was going to happen then. Retailers are not exactly thrilled about operating in an environment where you tell everybody, you can steal our stuff as long as you don't steal $1,000 or more at one time. And so the result of that is people moving out of those neighborhoods and not wanting to operate their business anymore because they can't recover the cost. They can't recover the loss. So, so it isn't true that we don't do that. But it is. I think we do have a view of it now that when we do it, it doesn't work well. And that's on a lower scale, right? With all due respect to the people whose stuff is being stolen, and I get that that's irritating because you're lose because you invested money, you bought that stuff to bring it in so that you could sell it and then make the profit, and now it's being stolen, and there's nothing you can do to recover that. And all the people that run around and say, "Well, they're insured," I don't think you understand how insurance works, yeah. right? Insurance is a risk pool. It's, it's, it's accepting that there's going to be some unpredictable things that happen. And when those things happen, if we all put our money into a risk pool and then one of us gets hit, then the money that we're going to take out is nothing compared to the money that's being put in, right? Yeah. That's what insurance is. This is not, you can't insure against this because you know what's going to happen. I mean, you absolutely 100% know they're going to steal because you've made it legal for them to do so. And so there's no way to recover insurance at this point because this doesn't even fall into the realm of insurance. This isn't a risk pool any longer. This is subsidizing theft, which is crazy. So getting off of that and getting back onto this discussion, it doesn't work when you try to protect people that are operating from bad motivations because it just encourages them to keep doing the wrong thing, right? So, and this is even worse because this isn't property. At least in that particular case, we can just say, look, it's just property. And, and Walmart or Target or anybody else can pull up and leave if they want to and not have to put their property at risk anymore. When we're talking about abortion, we're talking about the destruction of life. Another human being having to forfeit their life because of the decisions that you make. It doesn't make any sense if they are fully human for us to empower other human beings to kill them because something bad might happen to you during the time that during the, during the action of killing them, we would never empower 
a group of people to kill another group of people in massive numbers out of fear that some, if we don't, something bad might happen to a few of those people. It's like a million abortions a year. Some of those will be more than one. So let's say 800,000 women getting abortions a year. I'm just making that number up off the top of my head. <laughs> but it seems if people are getting more than one abortion, let's just say that that works out that way, and 10,000 of them are going to die, then it seems to me the, the best thing is to do is to stop abortion. But if 37 or 100 or whatever the numbers are, we don't give 37 to 10,000 people the right to kill a million other human lives to protect them from the terrible consequences of their decisions, even if we acknowledge that it's a tragedy that they die. It's a horrible thing that they die. We don't want them to die. Every single time one of them do, does die, they are a victim of the evil of abortion. So we don't encourage or endorse that evil. We stop it, right? We teach, we teach better. We do better at what we're doing. So number one, it presumes that the unborn are not human in the same way that you and I are. And number two, it's just not a great practice of law to protect people from the terrible consequences of their unjust decisions or immoral decisions. Do you have anything to add? Um, I don't think so. I know this was one of two responses that I know who sent it in. Um, and they did, they did follow it up by saying that they love babies, so they're not really sure where they stand um, because they hate the idea of a baby being killed, and they acknowledge that it's a baby. Uh, so... I know who this is and I know why. I especially know for them why it's so hard for them to choose. Um, because why? Without, and if you can't say without divulging things you don't want to divulge, that's fine. Respect privacy should be first. So this is, this is a very sexually active friend of mine. Um, mm -hmm. And they have had, not an abortion, but they've had the morning after pill, which you know can be abortion depending on. Um, that will be a whole nother show. <laughs> <laughs> we're not we're, we're not going down that right now let's and, say okay. yeah so i've i've been around her i think now with three different cases where she's had to use it okay. and so i know she's she's told me she's very uncomfortable with the idea of ever having to get um, okay. a procedure abortion but she struggles with especially because of the people she was with at the time she had to take it when and there's some levels which that struggle is understandable right it's empathy I mean, it's a t it is a tragedy. We have to do something to stop the tragedy from happening. Now, one of the problems is we were lied to about the tragedy. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the other side acknowledges this. I mean, they do. People, when Bernard Nathanson came out from there and became a pro-life, when he was part of the people, people pushing pro-choice views through Roe v. Wade and when he switched sides, he acknowledged that the 10,000 people a year was made up. Uh, there have been, uh, I'm trying to remember his name, but uh, there is a, a statistician that said, look, there's just not that many deaths in a year that you could have had 10,000 people a year dying of abortions, a ridiculous number. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about the number of women that are dying uh, that are in a childbearing age, there's just no way mm -hmm. that could happen. Uh, and that can't be the number that we're talking about. And you and now, and, and after the fact, and I've quoted this on this show multiple times, there in, a, in writing as well, there is a quote from, a pro-choice philosophical advocate at a university level, an academic, and she says, look, this just isn't 1950-something any longer. In 2023, we're never going to go. It will never be like that, right? That's just not the world that we live in any longer. Now it's going to be RU486 of the male. It's not going to be 
going to some weird seedy back alley place. That's just not the, the reality of, of illegal abortion going forward. So to some degree, even though I understand all that, uh, it's just, it, it both presupposes that the unborn are not human in the same way that you, that you and I, that we are, and that they're not one of us. And if they are one of us, then it's just a terrible way to go about crafting law because we can't protect a smaller number of people from the consequences of their decisions uh, and allow them then to kill a much, much, much larger number of human lives. That's just terrible reasoning. Uh, and it, it, at its very core, unjust. All right. That's two? That's two. All right. And we still got rape looming out there, right? All right. I was going to say we have five more. What? Are we going to, I was going to say, are we going to be able to, I have babysitting at one thirty. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We don't want the podcast to interfere with her babysitting, that's for sure. Okay, there's there's a really big one. Do you want to try Let's to, do the really big one, then. Yeah, let's do that? the really big one. Okay. That sounds good. I think everyone should have the right to choose what they want to do with their body. It's their body and no one should control it. I also believe that people have abortions for other reasons besides getting pregnant on accident. Some people get raped and get pregnant and don't want to have that child. Some people also don't want to put that child in the foster care system we currently have. They can also not have enough money to support the baby. They can also just not want kids and would resent it. Lastly, sometimes the unborn fetus is killing the mother, and the only way for her to survive is to have an abortion. There are plenty of valid reasons for people to want and have an abortion, even if it's simply because they want to. I do, however, believe that past three months it is too late to have an abortion because at that point the embryo has a heart and a brain, so to me it is considered a baby. Um, this is not the last time rape is brought up. <laughs> okay. One person's argument is basically entirely rape. All right. So. All right. Let's let's deal. This is coming very close to that letter that we got that we did a whole show on. Um, so basically, this is I. I don't mean this in any way to be insulting to the person who left that comment. Yeah. This is, or, or that objection. This is a very emotionally based objection. Yes. Yeah. And, and because it's colored with a lot of worst case scenario things. Uh, so let's work our way through them. That was a lot. Mm -hmm. So let's start off with the first claim. Um, people should be allowed to do whatever they want with their bodies. Nonsense. All right. So next, I mean, they, they can't, they don't believe that. They don't. They don't believe that anybody should be able to do anything they want with their bodies. There's all sorts of things. If they were, if they were here right now, we could have a reasonable conversation where we could find all sorts of things that they don't believe that about. That you shouldn't be allowed to do that with your body. There's also no. Every year this becomes weirder and it becomes more difficult. And I'll tell you why I say that. Because ten years ago, when people there was a there's a form of body dysmorphia where people believe that they should be handicapped that they just naturally feel like an amputee. And there was a time where the only way that you would treat somebody with that dysmorphia was to try to help them as best you could to become comfortable with their body. And we're going to stick to this scenario and not take this to other places right now with other, because I'm just not interested in diving into those at the moment. So let's just stick with this particular thing. And, and 10 years ago or so, I remember when I first started to hear the people who were working with someone with this sort of dysmorphia 
saying maybe instead of trying to help them to be comfortable in their healthy body, we should just cut off their limbs. We should just allow them to remove, like if, and, and because these people would harm themselves, right? If you felt like you should have no legs, they were constantly harming their legs because they just felt like they were supposed to be in a wheelchair. And, and to, in many ways, this was, obviously it's mental illness. Obviously it's mental illness. If you have two healthy legs to feel like you shouldn't have legs and you want to destroy them because you want to be an amputee in a wheelchair, go talk to people who had no choice. That, that, that's why they're amputees. Something happened that made it so they have no choice. Uh, and, and ask them if they think this is crazy or not. They'll tell you, yeah, that's nuts. It's in, But they wanted it and people said they're willing to do it. And then more and more you start to hear people advocating for the idea that that's a successful treatment. I still think that's crazy. I, I think that, that you can't treat somebody with that kind of body dysmorphia by allowing them to just destroy healthy limbs. That's not actually helping them. And it's, it's a weird standard to set. So I would say, though, that we could still find places that people should not be allowed to do anything that they want to do with their body and all sorts of restrictions on that. But here's the problem. When we're getting to abortion now, the question is, what do you mean by doing it to your body? Now, this is where you have two different ways that people are going to understand this. First of all, somebody might just not believe that the unborn life inside of them is a human life. They don't think the, the unborn is one of us. And so they believe that it's just the removal of valueless tissue. Well, they have to argue for that position. They don't get just to assert that this is a part of their body. It's tissue within their body. They're allowed to remove it if they want to. They have to argue for the idea that the unborn is not human, not one of us, and that the action they're taking is not the unjust destruction of an innocent human life and other. I should be able to do whatever I want with my body. This is not your body that we're talking about at this point. This is a body located inside of you. I understand the confusion. This is a body that is using your resources inside of you, your energy resources, your uh, your blood, all of that. I mean, your, they got their own blood. But that's using your body to process, to respirate, to grow, all of these things. But it's not your body. So they say, I'm allowed to do whatever I want with my body. The first question is, well, what do you think the thing that you're destroying is? Because if it's one of us, then now we're talking about another body. Now they may say, and this is where we get into the second category of arguments, it is one of us. And this is where we get into bodily autonomy arguments. They'll say it is one of us, but I should still be able to do it because it's using my organs and it doesn't have the right to use my organs without my consent. So... There's a lot of reasons why this is a bad argument. Uh, ultimately, you have you have pro-choice philosophers like Michael Tooley and Kate Greasley that say, I just don't find this argument convincing at all. It is usually considered the best pro-choice argument, but some of the best pro-choice philosophers say it's just not convincing. And one of the reasons that Kate Greasley says it's not convincing is that she says that if I accept, and she is a legal scholar and a moral philosopher, she said if we accept the humanity of the unborn, then the destruction of the unborn, the fetus or the embryo, is justifiable homicide. That's all. You know, when we talk about the death of a living human being, 
we have homicide, we have suicide, we have accidental death, we have natural causes, right? Those are the way people die. And every single one of them has to be categorized, right? Were you killed by somebody else? Homicide. Did you kill yourself? Suicide. Did you just die from natural causes? That's just natural causes, right? Uh, did you do something stupid? Accident, right? <laughs> you, you, and so those are, so we ha she said, we have to categorize how they died. And if the unborn are given full humanity, then that means that the destruction of the unborn is justifiable homicide. Because they're not dying by suicide, and they're not dying by natural causes, and they're not dying by accident. They're being intentionally destroyed by another human being. So that has to be homicide. And then if you're going to make it legal, it has to be justifiable homicide. And she says, this just does not raise to the level of justifiable homicide. She said, the bar for justifiable homicide in our society is set really high for a reason, so that people just can't run around killing each other and claiming justifiable homicide. And so if you say they're one of us, then that same criteria applies to them. And she said, it has to be necessary such that there's no other option. They have to die. In order to preserve other life, they have to die. It's not necessary. And she says it has to be a proportional, which means that whatever I lose by them continuing to exist, it, it has to be proportional to what I take away. And she said, whatever the problems that you're having under normal pregnancy, it's not proportional to having your life taken from you. So she said, because it's not necessary, there's other things that we can do. And it's not proportional. The, the, the costs aren't shared equally across the two decisions. Then it's not justifiable homicide. So you can't do whatever you want with your body. You can't kill other people. You can't steal from other people. There's all sorts of things that you can't do. Uh, Nika can't go get a tattoo, right? She's 14. She's not allowed to go get a tattoo. It's just not legal yet. I can't. You, can't, you should not. I don't think you should be able to. You can. Yeah. <laughs> you just felt like throwing that in. I can now. I can. I can. But so it's not true that you can do whatever you want with your body. What was next? So that's it's, it's just it's even nonsense. I mean, it's just nonsense. There's all sorts of le reasonable restrictions about what you can do with your body. Okay. Um. She just says the rape argument next. Yeah. Let's I don't, that I don't even know if it's a she. Um. Get pregnant. Some people also don't want to put the child in the foster care system. Okay, when you have a child, please. We don't place a child in foster care when they're born. That's just, I mean that's not how it works. There's a for newborns, there is a waiting list for adoption. I mean there's a waiting list. There are more people who want to adopt newborns than there are newborns to be adopted. So you don't take a child that was just born and dump them into the foster care system. The foster care system is for Children who have to be removed from their home. That's right. And, and, and the it, ultimate goal is to get them back to their home. It's not for them to get passed around or find a new family like it's depicted in movies. Yeah. The number one priority is to restore the family. Yeah. yeah. And they're not taking them because the person doesn't want a kid. It's the number one reason right now, from my understanding, when I looked it up most recently, that people enter the foster care system is opiate addiction is that a parent became addicted to opiates and they're not capable any longer of raising their kids. So the foster care system's goal would be to place them temporarily into a foster home. And I know there are horrible, horrible foster stories out there, but I also know four or five foster parents and they're some of the best people I know in the world. I think it's interesting. I see pro-choice people um, 
always want to assume the worst in their arguments against pro-choice, but then I see the same activists arguing for things that there are obviously horrible outcomes for. But, like, you know what I mean. Yeah. They like to take yeah, the minority I, I cases. Saying, yeah. Yes. They, and there's an like, assumption that's the of the worst issue. that could possibly yeah. happen, right? Yeah. If they're going to be born to a parent that didn't want them immediately, they're going into the foster care system, which, by the way, doesn't... I mean, you go talk to people here at First Care Women's Clinic, where we're actually filming this, and you um, talk to people who have had their children, and they're usually happy. Yeah. I mean, what they usually say is, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. I love her. I love him. I am just thrilled that I didn't make that decision. What they usually also say is that the child gave them focus. Uh, it gave their life purpose. It gave their life meaning. Adele of all people, got slammed. I don't know if y'all remember this. When she talked about how being a mother gave her life meaning and purpose that it didn't have before. And she was attacked for saying, can you imagine how messed up our culture, that, that side of this? You shouldn't be allowed to say that your children gave you purpose. What about the people who don't have kids? Are you saying they don't have purpose? Yes. They, they don't have this purpose. This meaning, and, and Elon Musk is slammed on this as well. I don't know if you've ever heard. Elon Musk is big on having kids. He says that there's, there's nothing in the world that will make you as happy as having a child. Nothing that you will feel so powerfully about, right? Nothing. I mean, you learn. I learned more about God's love for me when you guys came along than I ever could have understood it without y'all. If I didn't have y'all in my life to understand there are these people in my life, and there's nothing you can do that I wouldn't love you. I may not like every decision that you make. I may get upset about certain decisions that you make, but there's nothing you could ever do that would make me not love you and not be willing to die for you, right? And that's something I didn't fully understand until I had a kid, right? I heard, I think, um, uh, what's Deadpool's name, Ryan? Ryan Reynolds, right? I think he was talking about that with his wife. And I thought it was one of the funniest interviews I ever heard because he's like, I thought I loved my wife, right? I loved my, and then I had a kid and I was like, I, I would basically, I would throw you in front of the same right? He's like, you're nothing now compared to what I feel for this kid. And, and so there is something to that idea of what you're saying that the other side sees the worst in every scenario when it's something that they disagree with, right? They project the worst into it that don't want this newborn to go into the foster care system because either they, they're mistaken and think newborns immediately go in the foster system, which is weird. Or they think that because this child was born and at the time their parents found out they were pregnant, they didn't want them. So they're bound for the foster system, which again is nonsense because it's, if it's opiate addiction, that's the most, the number one driver into the foster care system. It's weird to think that every person who wasn't thrilled to find out they were preg pregnant is ultimately headed towards opiate addiction or something horrible like that. Uh, it's a weird way of understanding humanity. So let's get rid of the foster care. Foster care, like you pointed out, has nothing to do with this. Not having enough money, which is crazy. Yeah, what, what is enough to, money? To justify right? not having... I was about to say, I, look at our family. You had We're your poor. second child. And <laughs> look at our family. No. We have no money. <laughs> None whatsoever. I meant look at our family. You had three, three children, yes, which is did. not an obscene amount of children. Obviously, I have... <laughs> well, I have friends with... <laughs> What's an obscene amount of children? I have so many friends with like nine siblings, and that, that feels obscene? like a lot to me. <laughs> 
But here come the Catholic viewers. <laughs> but that's a good start. <laughs> you, you on your second child, I had diabetes. Yeah, I had type one. That's you a do. huge medical expense. It has been. And and then let's talk about the same child going and having to get experimental shoulder surgery because of a, a one of a kind injury that's never been seen before in the yes. medical history. This that's and this child right here. That's that's what two surgeries now, um, like eighty thousand each. Thanks, thanks to insurance, so that was we were able to manage that. But how are you going to plan for that? <laughs> yeah, no, you, you, you can't. You can't. You cannot have enough money. That's you know, and, and there's a great that point is made in a Christmas Carol when Belle and Ebenezer Scrooge are, or when Belle's leaving Ebenezer Scrooge, she's she one of the accusation that she lay, accusation that she lays down on him is that he he collects money and that's all he cares about. And his response to that is he is trying to be safe from the world. I have to have so much money that I'm safe from the world. And that's just not possible. We had people, by the way, before your, when, we, when we decided we wanted to have children, and that was a decision. We, we, this was very planned by your mom and I in the sense of we went to Disney World with some friends of ours, and while we were there, we were looking around, and we said, I'm sick of going without kids. Let's go have kids so we can go to Disney World with them you know, and start to see them. And that's basically, it was that realization that there's this whole aspect of life we were ready to get to, right, to share it with our kids. And when we said we were going to have kids, people who are still a part of our life came up to us and said, you can't have kids. You don't have enough money. Watch us. I, I mean, I don't even know what to say. That we're we're going to have kids, and and we realize. By the way, you, it's not a secret to you that you grew up without a lot of the things that other people did. You, we've been in ministry for most of your life, and so you grew up without. And we live in a very rich area of the country, and you grew up with a, a lot of the without a lot of the other things that other people had easy access to. Um, one of my favorite stories, I'm, you know, it's when Peyton was young, young, right, and. We were, and Payne was always a trooper, like uh, about not having the things that other people had. And so I was like, Amazon Fire, that their tablet went on sale for some crazy amount that you could get it. And so I got it, and Payton had never had a touch screen before. And when he got it, he was crazy emotional about it because he didn't think he could ever get anything like that. Like he was just something he could fast forward to his little sister. Who grew up with so many touch screens that she, when she was a kid, she walks up to the TV and starts trying to swipe she, at it. She had an iPad. <laughs> and she was like, what, eight? Nika got her iPad. Nika grew yeah. Nika grew up rich compared to Peyton. All right. So, so but in the sense that, yeah, she was just given everything. Every, because she had your hand-me-downs. No, you like, compared to Peyton. Well, yeah. <laughs> okay. So... I don't even know what we're talking about here. Oh, you're talking about the not idea. Not having enough money. Not having enough money for kids. Play? Yeah. How are you going to have, nobody has enough money for kids and there's no way that you could say that you have enough money. I mean, I've known people that were very wealthy that went bankrupt and I've known people that had very little that suddenly became an interesting, I've seen it happen like swap in my lifetime where a friend of mine had a lot of money and his, their like family had little. And then all of a sudden the one who had little came up with a great idea, worked really hard and became very wealthy and the other person had nothing. And, and so there's no way to guard against that idea. Well, I just don't have enough money. Uh, it's, it's not to say that kids aren't expensive because they are, 
It's just that all the other stuff you were doing, you start to realize you don't need, right? I just don't. I don't need that much stuff. And so uh, there was all these things that I had, and then we had Peyton and you and MJ or Anika. I mean, and there were periods after that where we're like, where we had to evaluate and say, okay, well, we're spending all this money on these other things that are very important, which means we can't spend it on these things that are not. And I'm very capable, you know this, I'm very capable of, of simplifying my diet for a long period of time because I just don't care. What, do you, what was that? You get grouchy if we cut off your Coke. You get a little grumpy. A little. Okay. But that's a dollar a day. Yeah, I see it. So that's a dollar a day, right? What I, I, get, I do get, I will say this. I get grouchy at like when, I, when, a thing, when I'm being told that my dollar a day habit's an extravagance. Like, what? Is it extravagance? It's a buck a day, man. I can, I can walk away. Like we, can, we can find somewhere else to cut the money, right? That's, it adds up. Oh, great. Yeah. Right. So, anyway. But money, not having enough money is a terrible reason to not have kids. It's even a worse reason to kill them, right? I mean, it's a terrible reason to not have children because children will give you purpose and focus and direction and, and add meaning to your life and, and help prioritize life. We talked about that on the last episode that we recorded um, or two episodes ago. It was the last episode. I can't remember, but it was we were discussing the idea of crisis gives you clarity, right? And and when when you're dealing with your type 1 diabetes, your diagnosis at eight years old, I don't remember caring about anything but you coming home healthy for those three days that you were in the hospital and leaving you and your mom in the hospital that day because when you are diagnosed with type 1, I mean, what we didn't know. I mean, we had no idea about any of this, right? But you had to go straight to the hospital and then they – Take you and I'm asking them, why do you have to take my daughter and put her in the hospital? And their response was, so you can learn to keep her alive because you don't know how to do that. And I had to leave you because your mom stayed with you and I had to go to take care of the other two. And that was just awful. But I didn't leave there with a whole list of other things that were bothering me. There was one, one thing, right? One thing that mattered to me was you and leaving your mom and you in the hospital and wanting to bring you guys home safe. So I think even there, they give you, when I say they give you purpose and clarity and meaning, they help you to realize what's genuinely and truly important. And most importantly, and I've heard Oprah Winfrey say, I'm just too selfish to have kids. I've actually heard a lot of celebrities say that I'm too selfish to have kids. And my response to that is usually like, you're right. You should never have kids. You, you're, you are from what you just said, you are right. You should never have children. You shouldn't. Uh, because if you're that self-centered, it's just not for you. You can't have kids and be self-centered. Or if you do, you're just a terrible parent. So, but if, but for the most part, I agree with Elon Musk and I agree with the people that say, yeah, kids, kids are not just a blessing, which as a Christian I accept, but they also do all of these other wonderful things. Um, I remember struggling through certain times financially and I didn't care when we were all hanging out. We would go to the park and play or we would do things and who cared? We didn't know. It's not like we sat around thinking all the time. We don't have as much as other people have. It just wasn't, that wasn't our life. And, and one of the, my favorite stories by this, by the way, is your mom told me about a woman she taught with in public school when your mother was a public school teacher. And this woman was sharing a story about her son. And she and her son were talking. And she said, at that point when they were younger, her son and was young, their family was very poor. And her son came to her. And this, at this point, they're telling the story. He's older, college age. And... They have a lot of money. Circumstances have changed. 
And this woman shared with your mom that her son came to her and said, remember when we were poor? And she said, of course I do. And he said this, wasn't that great? Wasn't that, I mean, and why? Because we are forced to do things together, right? We just couldn't, when we were poor, like poorer than we are now, which is hard to believe, but when we were poorer than we are now, when, we, when they were young, we would, here's how we handled going places. We bought a season pass to one place every year, right? So we would have a year where we went to the aquarium. We would have a year when we went to the zoo. We would have a year when we went to Fernbank. If we were really rich, we might get two. So we could do Fernbank and the zoo. But the cool thing was, we always did those things together, right? When we would be sitting around and talking, we'd say, hey, do you want to go to Whitewater today? We got the season's pass to Whitewater this summer. Do you want to go to the zoo today? And it was always us doing things as a family together. And it didn't matter that we kept going to the same place. There were just things about those places that we loved seeing and that each one of us would want to do every time that we go. So yeah, again, being poor is a terrible, terrible reason to not have kids. And as I said earlier, it's even a worse reason to kill your kids before they're born. Okay. Um, they could just not want kids and would resent it. Is there a next argument? Yeah. I mean, one of the things, though, that we say here at First Care Women's Clinic that I was taught, I've never counseled here. Let me be clear. Because, I, I, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I've been in the counseling room. I haven't. But when I worked as development coordinator, I was there for three years listening to counselors talk all the time. And I got to listen to Lori Parker talk about the counseling stuff. And so one of the things that I loved that Lori always said when she would talk to me about counseling, when she would say that you would have this person in front of them and they would say, I'm just not ready to have this child. And she would respond to them, you're not having that child today, right? I don't even know what it means, by the way, to be ready to have a kid. I genuinely don't have the slightest idea what that means. When we were taking Peyton home from the hospital was the weirdest moment to me ever because like, I don't know how to be a dad, and you're just letting me leave with this kid. I haven't had to pass a test. I haven't had to do – I mean, you just – there's no license I haven't had to apply for anything. We just came. We gave, my, you know, Tracy had the kid. We have, we have a kid now. And then they were like, okay, bye. And you just get in a car and leave. Like, this is the craziest thing ever. I'm not ready to be a dad. I don't know what that is. The saddest thing about parenting, by the way, one of the things that I, I believe is true, is that when you're young, you have the energy to be a good parent in the sense of keeping up with your kids, but not the emotional maturity to be able to be the parent that you should be. When you get older, you have the emotional maturity, but not the energy any longer. And so you're, it's it, when I, I am, I am by orders of magnitude a better parent now than I was when you guys were kids. But that's because I was just making it up when you guys were little. I didn't know what I was doing. I was never ready, but I did want you. But just not wanting you today doesn't mean I'll never want you. And that's one of the things that Lori talks about in counseling. Just because today you are terrified doesn't mean that you will be tomorrow. Just because today you don't think you want this child as a part of your life doesn't mean that won't change tomorrow. And nothing will change you like seeing your kid. 
I remember what each one of you looked like when you were born. I can remember sitting with each one of you in the hospital room and I, and, and nothing will change your world like seeing your kid. And, and then now there are obviously cases of postpartum depression or women that go through things that are biological that they need help with, but that's not because they're, they're failing as a mother. That just means that they're having hormonal issues that are making it difficult for them to bond in the way that they normally would in that case. But saying they don't want it now, I think is missing what Lori says. It's not coming today. Just sit with it for a little while and start to think about it because just that child doesn't mean all of your dreams are off the table. Every meaningful thing that you probably want to accomplish is still on the table. Look at one of our Supreme court justices right now uh, who managed to put herself to law school as a mom and rise through the ranks of the legal system and ultimately become a Supreme Court justice, all of that while being a mom uh, and an adoptive mother at the same time as well. So, okay. They don't want to be a mom. And then obviously the other op option is place a child in adoption, which is a much more life-affirming choice. All right, and they said, lastly, sometimes the unborn fetus is killing the mother, and the only way for her to survive is to have an abortion. Okay, that's, you know, if that's true... You know, technically speaking, we don't even categorize as an abortion. Yeah. Uh, but if it's, if it's true that we're genuinely in a situation where we're going to, and that only happens early in pregnancy. We talk about like, like tubal ectopic pregnancy. If it's true we're in a situation where that child development will ultimately kill the mother and it's happening so early in the development that there's no way to separate the patients because the unborn child will die it's just not developed enough to live. Then given the option between killing one or, or taking action that will end in the destruction or the end of life of one, because it's not an intentional killing, right? But removing one and causing them to die so that we can save another or letting them both die, then the only moral choice that we have is to intercede. Because if the mother dies, you don't, neither of them get to live. That's right. Yeah, no we life. lose two lives, right? Yeah. If we do nothing, we lose two. So we're going to preserve what life can be preserved. And, and in the interview with Christopher Tolson that's online, um, we talk about that at length, a little bit about the principle of double effect and the idea of uh, what, what double effect reasoning means is I'm intending to preserve life. I'm not intending to destroy life. But as I take this action, I understand it's foreseeable that the action will end a life. But I have to preserve what life can be preserved. And so the double effect reasoning says, I'm not intending to destroy that life. If there were a way to save them both, I would. I can't. So I must save what life can be saved, even though I foresee that this action will end in the death of that one child. And so, but I don't know any reasonable pro-life people that object to that. I mean, that's not even, that's not even on the table anyway. So it's not really an objection for my view. Uh, it's just somebody who thinks they understand what we believe and they don't. Which would be scary if, if you thought that what people were trying to implement in law would mean that the mother has to die with the child or something. Like, yeah. I, like I understand why that would scare someone if they thought that was the situation. Yeah. And they tried, they tried to confuse those things. And <sighs> which, what state was it? Well, I'm trying to remember the state where that law was written. It wasn't, was it Ohio? I know Ohio and Kentucky where they had laws. They had started to talk about the two black topic pregnancies and life of the mother. And the way it was worded was poorly worded. And the other side tried to categorize it as we don't care if the mother lives. 
And the response of the people who proposed the legislation was to go and change the wording. I said, oh, you're right. That wording is a little confusing. Let me fix that for you. And they went and fixed it, right? But that was not the narrative that was shared by those people who wanted yeah. to discredit our view. They wanted to discredit our view was just by saying, we don't care if women die. Uh, and that was the narrative. Even when it was fixed, they didn't go back and say it's fixed. They just kept playing the false narrative. We don't care if women die. That's not true. And particularly since the majority of women I know, I mean, the majority of people that I know in the pro-life movement are women. It's not all, you know, old men old white men, like people like to portray it as most, most of the most powerful people in the pro-life movement, as far as the heads of the most of the major organizations are almost all women. And, and the doctors that are, have the, the loudest voice are women. The only area I would say that's not true is in the area of philosophy on the pro-life side. That tends to be more men than women, but that's just because there actually are just more men in philosophy. I was to say philosophy is male dominated. Yeah. Male dominated. Not, not that there aren't some brilliant women in it. It just means that, for the most part right now, the most active voices on the philosophical side do tend to be men. But that's the only area where that's true. So it would be weird for a bunch of women to not care if women die. That would just be strange because they're all women. All right. Is that it? Uh, she wraps it up by saying, I do, however, believe that past three months is too late to have an abortion because at that point the embryo or has a heart and brain. So to me, it is considered a baby already. No, and we did a lot about the brain on the last episode, or, or, or two episodes ago. We talked about the idea of the brain and, and how the brain, the coming of the brain should not be the beginning of valuable life. By the way, that undermines her point earlier, or assuming it's a her, that undermines the point made earlier by this person that they can do whatever they want with their body. Because then that's a weird object, that's a weird caveat there for them, right? You can do whatever you want with your body until to three months, point. and then after that, you can't. And by the way, it has a brain, and depending on how you understand a functioning brain, way earlier than either three months. But at the same point, it's not functioning at the level that some people are going to acquire until long afterwards. Long afterwards. So tagging brain development in three months is just a mix of I don't. I had a guy one time I met at a restaurant. And he said, "Jay, can you tell me what's the big deal about the three month mark?" And I said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "Well, the first trimester." You can get abortions, and then after that, you can't. And this was during Roe v. Wade. First of all, that's not true. You can get abortions all the way up until the point the baby's born, according to Roe v. Wade. Secondly, I, I don't know why you think this, what, what is it about this marker that you're asking about? Three, there's nothing that's happening at the three-month period that's magically changing the kind of thing that it is. And most of the things that we're talking about, when we talk about heartbeat and brain and all that stuff happens way before the three-month mark. So, all right. Is that it for that one? That's it for that Let's one. Let's do one more, and then we'll bring MJ back. She'll, we'll, she'll, after you finish Cobra After we finish Cobra Kai, which is most important, and she collects a few more objections, we'll bring MJ back. So what number are we on? Um, four? Yeah, this will be four. This will be four. So I have three more that I already have, and then I, I have two people that I need to harass. About okay, yeah, get more, get more. Okay, this is number four, the fourth and final objection from, unless it's really short, maybe we'll do another one. Okay. I think the person carrying the fetus has a right to their own body. They should get to choose if slash when they carry a child and especially should not have to fight to be able to have an abortion if either the fetus or themselves would not survive the pregnancy or birth. Okay. So some of that we've already covered. Yeah. 
All right. Um, but let's think, let's think about that. Because I want to give every answer respectfully. Say it again. Say it one more time. I think the person carrying the fetus has a right to their own body. Okay, they should get that. to choose if slash when they carry a child. Let's stop there. Okay. If slash when they carry a child. Now, I think this is interesting because um, one of the things that they get very frustrated about is if you point out, I agree with you, you should be able to decide when you want a child. And there is a surefire way for you to not have a child. Don't have sex. There you go. Right? Absolutely 100% effective. And I do think part of the problem is that we, we live in such a sexually saturated culture where the importance of sex has been elevated to something ridiculous. I was just telling your, your sister Nika last night that one of the things that's been very refreshing about leaving, reading Jane Austen recently is Jane Austen's complete disinterest with sex. It's just not a part of the stories that she's telling. And if, and when it does, when it does become, it's usually the rogue, right? The, the, the bad guy is somebody who is preoccupied with sex and making decisions based on their sexual desire. What's the one in Sense and Sensibility? Willoughby. Willoughby, Willoughby and Sense and Sensibility. Uh, Wickham, Wickham and Pride and Prejudice, right? It's the people who are driven by their passions like that are, are not respectable people ultimately. And the people who govern themselves and their passions and their manners and all of these things come up are, are people who understand their role in society or community. And it's a refreshing thing to read from a time period where this wasn't the obsession of, of, the, of the people living within it. And now, so this idea... They should be able to have children when they want. You say, okay, don't have sex. Well, that's not reasonable because people are going to have sex. Actually, by, by the way, the numbers for your generation are lower. More people, yeah, hey, raise your <laughs> Fewer people in your generation are having sex than in the generation that preceded you. It's more, it is more normal now in your generation for people to wait uh, and to not make as big a deal about it. There are lots of interesting things about that, but it is, it is, a demonstration that it's not necessary that the most sexualized version of our culture has to be acted out all the time. You can, you can live without it. It's possible. I mean, and, 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 and it's depressing if you want to get into other elements about how sexualized we are. So, so that when you tell somebody you can just not do that, if you don't want to have kids, that scene is crazy. But, but what's more crazy, the idea that if you want to not have children to do your best to practice the most surefire way of not ever having kids, which is to not have sex, or is it more crazy to believe that you should be able to have sex with as many people as you want, as often as you like, without any biological repercussions, without any emotional repercussions, without any spiritual repercussions, without any social repercussions, because that's what's being argued for by a lot of people in the world today. That I ought to be able to do this thing because it's fun and I enjoy it as often as I like with however many people that I want. And there should be absolutely zero consequences beyond the idea that I just get to enjoy sex. And sex is a tremendously complicated thing. 
the emotions that are that are exist between human beings, the 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 for Christians, the spiritual implications of it, the biological implications of either pregnancy or disease, all of these things are a reality that come into play. And the social like it's not fair that I'd be stigmatized by having an OnlyFans account. Yes, actually it is. It is a hundred percent fair, right? It would be unfair if you were to be able to get all the benefits and none of the cost. The benefits are if you have a successful OnlyFans account that you go online, do sexual tricks for people, they pay money to watch you, and you get to be rich and have a lot of money for doing it. But it's absolutely fair that you be stigmatized for that. That is 100% fair. You don't get to go do that, be that, and then turn around and be the all-American mom, right? Or expect every man to just be willing to marry you and take you home to mom. There are costs to the decisions that we make. And in this world today, we are argued for all the time by a group of people that we think we should be able to make whatever sexual decisions we want to make without there being any cost. So which one of those to me is crazier? The idea that you can just restrict your sexual habits to prevent yourself from becoming pregnant when you don't want to be? Or the idea that you should be able to have sex with as many people as you like as often as you like without any other repercussions other than enjoying the physical act of sex? The second one is absolutely unrealistic on every level. It's just not how the world works. The first one is just stating an obvious fact. And only a culture that's obsessed with pleasing itself and the belief that we could somehow get to this place where we have no consequences for the decisions that we make would believe that those that, that situation is reversed. That it's crazy unreasonable to ask you to not have sex. That's insanely unreasonable but it's perfectly reasonable for me to be able to have sex as often as I like with many people as I want. And even online in front of people making money for it without there being any repercussions or stigmatization for that whatsoever. There should be no social cost, no biological cost, no emotional cost, no spiritual cost, nothing. Just me doing whatever I want, whenever I want and benefiting from it hundred mm-hmm. percent. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. And that's the culture we live on that they live in, that they have tried to reverse those two. One, the most reasonable statement of fact is insane and unreasonable. One, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard anybody say in regards to sex is supposed to be the goal of society. Nonsense. Yeah, so it's when sex if they carry the child, and they especially should not have to fight to be able to have an abortion if either the fetus or themselves would not survive the pregnancy or birth. We've covered that. So, yeah. All right, I feel pretty good. About where we are. One more? One more. JD's saying one more. We got time for one more. Do a, a smaller one again. Uh, let's go ahead. I support its use in saving lives and protecting the victims of rape slash sexual assault. I don't agree that it is always used in the most positive way, but I don't think it should be completely outlawed. Okay, so now it's rape. Yeah. Yeah, we kind of have to. I was going to say, rape. I don't no, feel like we can put that off till the next one. Because yeah, we've talked about it a lot. I keep saying, let's not talk about rape sooner or later, just like yeah. a coward. Okay, so let's talk about this, the, the question of rape for a second. There, there are, first of all, people say, do you get uncomfortable when you have to answer the question of rape? A little bit, but that's because rape's awful. I mean, that's why I get uncomfortable, because rape is terrible. This is considered a hard case. So it's hard. Because rape is a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing no matter what your view of the unborn is. Whatever you think the unborn are, rape is awful. 
It's a terrible evil that exists in our world. And so the question then becomes, what's the best thing that we can do with the bad situation we've been confronted with? So we, we, all of us, every reasonable moral person on earth recognizes the evil of rape and recognizes the damage that has been done to an individual who has been raped, male or female, because men are raped. If you have been violated in that, it is, it is one of the most evil things a human being can do to another. It's one of the big ones at the top of the list. And in the event that a woman has been raped and becomes pregnant, it is understandable that a lot of people who are otherwise against abortion and have a positive view of the membership of the unborn in our human family, that they believe the unborn are one of us, that they would say, I'm with you everywhere except here. Because we can't do that to her Mm -hmm. because of what she's already been through. And even in the case, let's let's talk about the most horrifying case that we've heard about, for me, and that's hard to say because I've heard about a lot of horrifying things, but recently when in Ohio, a nine-year-old girl was raped twice by a man in his late 20s. I think he was 27. It was an illegal immigrant. I don't know why that matters, but raped this girl twice. She was pregnant. She got an abortion at the age of 10. It was made a big deal of in the national media because they said she shouldn't have had to go to Indiana to get her abortion. She shouldn't have been able to get it in Ohio. So that's the worst case scenario, right? How can you, meaning me, which is the question that's been put to me, stand here and say, sit here and say, on your podcast say, that women who have been victimized by abortion, how can I say a 10-year-old child who has been victimized by rape, I mean, not abortion, should be forced to have their child against their will. And this is tough because I feel for everybody involved. But I believe that abortion is the unjust destruction of an innocent human life. And so when I'm trying to answer the question, what's the best thing that we can do with the bad situation we've been confronted with? I'm hesitant to say the knee-jerk reaction of saying, just go ahead and kill the unborn child is our best. It's just, I just can't see it. It's not our best. It's not the best we can be as human beings. It's not the highest level of our humanity, just if we're saying, let him kill him. Just let him, let him kill him. That there are things that must be done, that we as a community must do something, but that's just not our best. That's not us at our best. Because I believe that the unborn are fully human, we have to find the most life-affirming. Now, if, if the pregnancy was too much, if the doctor said, this will kill that child, now we're looking at something different, and we have to make different moral decisions at that point. This is the worst thing. we can... Here's the thing, though. There is no moral view that we can take where we're not going to have hard questions and we're not going to have to deal with difficult issues. And this is the most horrifying one that we have to deal with on our side in the sense of how do we handle this? I'm, I am compelled to believe as going back to our thing earlier, as somebody who's operating on principle, not politics, that advocating for the respect for all life puts me in a position where I resist the urge to say, destroy life because it was conceived in rape because that will help the mother. I believe in managed care. 
So if it looks like this is too much for a 10-year-old child to deal with, to handle in the sense of physically it's threatening her and her own ability, then we have a different scenario. But in most cases, if we're talking about adults, and we look at it and, we're, and we're, if we're, it's looks like a healthy pregnancy, then I say the best that we can do as our community isn't that, but to come alongside that person and try as best we can to help them to deal with what's happened to them and to see this as a, a restorative act within it. By the way, the majority of the last time I saw the statistics, and this was five years ago, the last time I looked up the, the statistics, more than half, well more than half of the women who conceive through rape choose to carry. So it's not the case that all women want to destroy their child because they can't. And, and if you talk, obviously, to children who were conceived and raped who are now adults, they're grateful for that. And they're very grateful for the idea that they weren't seen through the lens of rape spawn and that they didn't carry the guilt of their father. So if you see, if you see it as a, as a fully human, then the, the, the question is, if you don't think it is human, by the way, rape doesn't matter in the same way. If somebody says to me, what do I think about rape? And I ask them, do you think the unborn are human in the same way that you and I are? Do you think they're one of us? And their answer is no. Well, then you think any reason's a good reason to get an abortion. You don't, rape is just one reason. Yeah, they're trying to hide behind it. That's right, yeah. And they're trying to make me look bad. Yeah, so, I, but I already feel bad about rape, so we'll just talk about it anyway. So, but that's not, you You think all reasons for getting an abortion are equally valid. Rape or I want to go on vacation and don't want to be pregnant so I want to drink however much I want to drink. Which, by the way, I have read happened, right? I, I, I have read writers who say that was the reason a friend of mine got an abortion. But both of those, however trivial one may be and however horrifying the other one may be, are all equally reasons to get an abortion if you don't think they're unborn or human. So the rape exception becomes interesting if you do. Because what you're saying is, I believe they're one of us, but this is so awful, they have to be free to destroy that life. And I was originally given this by Scott Klusendorf, and he and I talked about this for years, but I've talked about it all over the country and got a lot of credit for it, but it was, it was him who re- originally gave me this. He said, imagine that we're talking, if we accept the full humanity of the unborn, in the case of a life that was conceived in rape, we have three fully valuable members of the human family involved in this situation now. We have, who are the three? Play the game with me. Uh, the mother. The woman who conceived a child in rape. The baby. The child that was conceived in rape. The rapist. The man guilty of rape. Yes. They're because their value is intrinsic to who and what they are, right? He's morally guilty, but it doesn't mean he's no longer an intrinsically valuable human being. It just means he is a morally guilty human being, correct? Mm -hmm. So then the question comes, okay, let's take the man. And I ask this question in front of audiences. I I actually don't know where you stand on this. We've never talked about this. Do you think that rapists ought to be executed for the crime of rape? Do you think they forfeit their life when they choose to rape? No. You seem torn on this. Well, I want to say no, but I'm worried you'll think that's the wrong answer. Um, (laughs) No, there is no. no. I want to know what you think, not what I think. I know what I think. I say no. um, Why? Well, I say no for a lot of practical First off, we've talked before about cases where there have been incorrect accusations, 
something else has come up and happened that shows the story in a different light. Whatever happens. So the Duke lacrosse case is a big one of those. Yeah. The, uh, University of Virginia rape case was one of those. Yeah. So if we say we should kill the rape, well, right after the accusations made, after the first trial, after years after it's so like, when, when are you saying? I mean, there's more evidence that comes up. Obviously, that's not every case. There are a lot of cases. I still think the majority of cases are where it actually happened. But just, you know. I, there I, have I, been cases that have been overturned long after the fact. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And most of those cases, by the way, were black men that were accused of raping white women yeah. when you start to look into it. And so that, that becomes a, a horrifying idea had we allowed execution for rape. But that, that is a problem with just capital punishment altogether. Yeah. If you're going to think about this. So, yeah. But your answer is no. You don't think we should kill. Okay. And by the way, most people agree with you. Yeah. Also, I mean, as someone who's been sexually assaulted, I don't think that'd make me feel better at the end of the day. I don't think that would help anything. I don't think I would feel better if I thought those actions resulted in someone losing their life. Okay. Fair enough. Most people, by the way, the majority of people are against capital punishment altogether for all reasons. I mean, for most people don't either. For different, now there's different, within there, there's a spectrum. There's some people who are in principle all right with capital punishment, but they just don't trust the government to actually do it justly. And then there's people that are absolutely against capital punishment. Those two groups together combine for more than 50% of people when they're polled uh, that say the cap, uh, capital punishment just shouldn't be a thing. So most people don't think it should be a thing at all, much less for rape. I mean, they, can, they can't think of anything you could do that you deserve capital punishment. They don't like it. Um, those audiences, by the way, when you ask audiences, it changes depending on what part of the country you're in. If you're in the South, you get a lot more hands raised for people who think that the rapist should be executed. If you go to more liberal parts of the country, you get fewer. Mm-hmm. You always get some. Uh, it's interesting if you ask that question in Catholic churches which, or Catholic schools, which tend to be the Catholic church is against the death penalty uh, and capital punishment. You, you see hands are more hesitant <laughs> to come up. And they're looking at the priest as their hands go up or the nuns to try to figure out if they're going to get in trouble for holding this position. But the overwhelming majority of people say no. The rapist should not be killed. They recognize the evil of rape. They recognize that he's guilty of a terrible crime, moral and legal, but primarily moral. But they don't think that he should be executed. And then the next question I ask is, do you think the woman should be executed for being a victim of the moral evil of the man. Obviously not. Obviously not. Nobody has ever said yet. I think one person raised their hand one time, but it was clear they weren't listening to me. All they heard was raise your hand, and they assumed, I guess, after the last question, since so many people raised their hand, that they were going to And I was like, who did they think? And this guy raised his hand, and then everybody in the room shot him a look. Clearly wasn't paying attention. His <laughs> hand went back down. He was horrified. That's it. That's the only fr- affirmative I've ever gotten. We don't believe in honor killings here. We don't believe that a woman who has been raped has been permanently dishonored to her family, that she is broken and irretrievably lost to our community. We don't believe that the best thing that we can do is to kill them. Anybody who suggested that, we would see as morally abhorrent. Why? Why, why, why? Why would it be wrong? Why would that is so clearly be morally abhorrent to all of us? What do you think? Well, aside from, because, you know, obviously if I don't believe in killing the rapist, there's absolutely no reason I would believe in killing the rapist. Well, let's the say woman. you did. Let's yeah. say you did believe in killing the rapist. Um, that's destruction of a human life for a choice, for consequences for an action they didn't choose. 
There you go. You are destroying one human being because of the moral guilt of another. Right? They didn't do anything wrong. They're just a victim. And we, we acknowledge that one party is morally guilty, but we also see that this party here, the woman, is not. So then the final question that we ask in this conversation is, if the majority of people don't want to kill the man, the morally guilty party, the actual rapist, and nobody, nobody thinks that we should kill the woman because it's unjust, as you just said, to take the moral guilt of the one party and assign it to another who does, did not participate in that guilt, who's a victim of that guilt, then why are we so comfortable in talking about killing the third human being? Why are we all so comfortable in saying, if we wouldn't kill him, and nobody thinks we should kill her, but we should kill them, or at least be allowed to if we want to? That's a question, by the way, that, for which I've never had a good answer. Now, the most common answer oddly enough, for those who want to try to respond, is, well, then I've changed my mind. I think we should be able to kill the rapist. I've actually had that happen multiple times. But that's, the child still didn't do any, it's still an innocent party. That's right. That doesn't change the moral implications of your actions. But it's interesting that that's a response from some people, is to say, what if I change my mind and say I think it's okay? Because I'll say then, you, then can I kill the baby? Then can I kill? That's their that's their point. It's right. If I'm willing to kill him, can I kill them now? Right? Because I start that with saying you didn't even want to kill the rapist a minute ago. Okay, well now I say we should kill a rapist. As you just pointed out, what does that have to do with the unborn child? What they, does just change about the child? Nothing. They, nothing. It changed nothing about them. But it's like if I'm willing to kill him, can I kill him? And it, it and and my response to that, by the way, is. Thank you. You just gave us a real-time example of the dehumanizing nature of abortion. Just five seconds ago, you didn't want to kill the rapist. And now in order to be able to kill the fetus, you'll add the rapist to your ledger as well. If I'll kill more, can I kill them? If I open up myself to killing other people, can I make it possible to kill them? Which is the game you start to play. For all of the people that think that the... And I understand this. Some of my favorite people on earth, by the way, are pro-choice. Some of the people I love the most in this world or, 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 or respect or love to talk to, love to spend time with, they disagree with me on this issue, right? And I get it because they believe it's grounded in humanity. They think that they want what's best for the woman and by virtue of that, they want what's best for the community. And where they and I disagree is when I say, look at what we just talked about. It's never going to stop there. Once we start playing the game that expendable human life can be dealt with, through that decision, it doesn't end there. You will add other lives to the ledger. Because at the end of the day, there's nothing easier than just getting rid of the life. It's the easiest choice to make in the world. It's just to get it out of the way. And we'll, we'll use that solution elsewhere because we already do. We're already doing it. So, yeah, dealing with rape, we have to acknowledge that it's a terrible thing. But we have to ask ourselves, what's the best thing that we can do? And I don't think killing the child because of the moral guilt of the father is the best solution that we have as a culture. And I want to end on this. Uh, this will be the end of this episode. And we'll come back. You're coming back. Uh, you don't have any choice. <laughs> You're coming back. Um, is when we look at this and we ask that question about what's the best that we can do. When I say 
that we ought to treat every human being with dignity and respect, and other people who make these arguments, it's not lost on us that there's going to be really terrible things that happen that we're going to have a very hard time dealing with. And that will stretch us as a community to find a gracious, and for me and you, a Christ-like response to this. We know that's going to happen. We know there's going to be young people like that 10-year-old. They're going to rally us and make us have to, to face horrifyingly difficult things and to figure out how we can be the most human we can be in the midst of that. What's the best thing that we can do as human beings when confronted with that? And that's why, going back to what we talked about earlier, those principles are important to have in front of us. Mm -hmm. Why it's not good to start to play the game of what I'm willing to accept. Mm -hmm. Why it's more important that I always think what's the highest execution of this principle in the world around us today, and how can we push society towards it? <coughs> Ridiculous. You just ruined the podcast coughing. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Amateurs. Anyway, all right. Now we're, we're, we're rethinking having MJ back after the embarrassing cough episode, but she has water now. Uh, so, no, at the end of the day, the question is, what's the highest execution of our human duties and responsibilities to other human beings, right, to other members of the human family? And when we're confronted with something on the fringe, something difficult like rape, it calls on a lot from the community to respond. We're required. But one of the things I have tried to tell audiences for years, and I genuinely believe this, and I think I mentioned it to Christopher Tollefson in our discussion of his book, The Way of Medicine, is it will be better for everybody. A world where we are trying our best to treat each other with the most respect that we possibly can is still going to have hard issues confront us. We're still going to have to confront terrible realities about the human experience, about human society, about the evil of some of our neighbors. It's going to happen. But a society where we are striving toward the best that we can be within that is better for everybody because it will, it will cut out those corners that we will cut. It will remove those corners it will cut on, on valuing human life where we will start to look for easy answers. There are no easy answers. There is just love your neighbor as yourself and everything that comes with it, and that is a high, high calling. It is a high calling. She's going to cough again. <laughs> Go ahead. <coughs> Amateur. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, and also, finally, to close the rape thing, going back to the people who don't believe rape is the reason that abortion should be legal, right, because they don't think the unborn are human. One of the things that we do ask people, when I find somebody like that, it's like, okay, if you agree, if we both agree right now that rape should be tabled for the moment, I'm never going to give up on it, but let's table it for a moment. And would you then join me in restricting the 98 to 99% of abortions that have absolutely nothing to do with rape. And we're talking about a 1% to 2% of all of abortions are tied into rape. So would you be willing to restrict all others and we'll just table abortion for right now. We'll keep talking about it. I'll keep advocating for that life. But for the moment, we'll stop all abortions except that one. Would you be willing to do that? Never. They've nobody's ever said yes to that question. They've all said no. No. So why? Because you don't think abortion 
the reason you don't think the reason abortion should be legal is because of rape. Yeah. Right. You think it should be legal for all sorts of reasons. So then the last question, then why did you bring it up? Seriously, why why did you why did you bring it up in front of the audience? You know why you brought it up to make me look bad. But I'm just never I, I can't say this enough. I am never ever going to feel bad for advocating for a position that says that we ought to respect all human life from the moment it comes into existence to the time it dies. I will never ever feel bad for an overabundance of caution and following Christ's command to love my neighbor as myself. It's never going to bother me. You'll never make me feel bad for saying that that's, let's figure out the best that we can do, not the easiest that we can do. That's just not ever going to be a problem for me. All right. That's episode eight in the books. Uh, in spite of the coughing fit at the end, I think we're going to bring her back because she does have other questions to ask. Uh, and if, as always, if you enjoy this content, feel free to visit us at merelyhumanministries.org where you can donate to the cause, to production of more of this. If you like MJ, feel free to message me and say that you like her uh, in spite of the embarrassing end to the show where it all fell apart. She is she is a formidable and resourceful human being, and so we're going to have her back whether you like her or not. It's like everything that we do on this show. We do it because we want to do it, and we hope that you enjoy it and we're creating a resource that's useful to you. Um, we are still, we have two episodes left in season two. One of them will be dealing with the change in laws in the United States since the end of Roe and the beginning of the Dobbs versus Jackson paradigm that we all live under now. We're going to try to look as much as we can about all of the different areas in the 50 states and see what we can find out about how the world and the landscape have changed and to reevaluate the kind of arguments that people are having. And then we hopefully have one more interview as well. So thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next time.